contemplation avant le chant. La Sangha est invitée à retourner à sa respiration afin que l'énergie collective de pleine conscience la rassemble comme un organisme, sans aucune séparation, coulant comme une rivière. Puissions-nous respirer comme un seul corps, chanter comme un seul corps, écouter comme un seul corps, et transcender les frontières d'un soi illusoire, nous libérant ainsi des complexes de supériorité, d'infériorité et d'égalité.
Sister Dinim just announced that um, there's a bit more space in the near ties podium because the monastics have gone uh, away after chanting. He's letting the children know that today's Dharma talk will be in French, and he's asking them, do you understand French? Yes.
Good morning, dear friends. Today is July the 12th in the year 2013. And we are in the new hamlet of Plum Village. I would like to entrust this question to you. We should plant this question in our heart, and one day an answer will come. The children of the New Hamlet have been growing some pots from seeds. The New Hamlet sisters gave them some seeds. They planted those seeds in a pot. And after five days, we have these little plants. In Buddhism, a question is like a seed. The master, the teacher, entrusts a seed to the student. You, the student, you plant that seed in your heart, in the soil of your own heart, begin to breathe and walk in mindfulness, and maybe after three days or five days, that seed will break open and sprout and offer leaves. A question is a seed. I don't expect an answer today, maybe tomorrow or the day after. You have time to plant the seed in your heart, and maybe when you get back home, it will sprout as an answer. So then, at that time, you can write a letter to Thai. You can write, Dear Thai, here's the answer to your question. But not today, because the question is still just a seed. It takes time to be able to, for the seed to be able to sprout and give rise to leaves and flowers. When I was five years old, a little boy, I was taught this lesson, this uh, recitation. We had to get up on a table, a podium. I had to do that for everyone to hear me recite it. I still remember that recitation that I was given when I was just five years old. This is my hand. It has five fingers. That's the first line of the poem. This is my hand. It has five fingers. Here are two, and here are three. This is a poem. This little man, he's holding up the thumb, is called the thumb. The index that points the way is the second finger on my hand. Between the index and the ring, 
the middle finger looks like a big brother. The ring finger wears the ring, and it's made, it makes beauty with the ring. The pinky walks close to the ring finger. So I had to get up on a table and recite it and make those uh, gestures. And I still remember that poem that I had to recite. So the question I'm asking you today is, in my hand, there are five fingers, and each one has a name. The thumb is the biggest finger, the widest, the widest, and the middle finger is the tallest. There are five fingers. Each finger has its name. And they don't look the same. And that way they can live in peace. They never fight. They live in harmony. And they bring me, the rest of my body, a lot of happiness. So the question to place in your heart tomorrow or the day after, you will have the answer. How are they able to do like that? So, when you hear the sound of the small bell, children, you can continue your practice outside in the fresh air. Have a good day, have fun. So, once again, uh, some spaces have been freed up at the front of the hall, near type, with the children going out. So, if you don't have a place, you can come to the front.
Shanti has just written the first eight exercises that we've been talking about on the board. The first one is recognizing the in and out breath. The second one is following the in and out breath. recognizing the body. So, dear friends, the other day we learned the eight, the first eight exercises on the full awareness of breathing, and I hope that you've been able to begin practicing them throughout the day. It brings well-being. It helps us to release tension in the body. It helps to calm the feelings, painful feelings, calm the strong emotions, and so on. It helps us to generate the energy of joy and also of happiness. Today we will continue with the ninth exercise. So the fourth was to calm the body. The ninth exercise, recognizing mental formations, being aware of our mind. The fifth is generating joy. The sixth is generating happiness. The seventh is recognizing painful feeling, and the eighth was calming the painful feeling. When I was novice, I had to learn the name of all the, of each of the mental formations, 51. Around 50 mental formations. I had to memorize the names of them. And so, whenever a mental formation would manifest, we would be able to call that mental formation by its true name. For example, when anger comes up, we should be able to say, Hello, my anger. I know you're, you're my anger. I recognize you. I'm going to take good care of you. So there are 51 categories of mental formation, and the practitioner should be able to recognize each mental formation as it manifests. Anger, jealousy, fear, despair, etc. And also the wholesome mental formations like joy, understanding, happiness, non-fear, mindfulness. Mindfulness is a mental formation concentration also, and insight also. These are positive mental formations. So in us there are seeds. Mental 
elemental seeds that are buried in the soil of our store consciousness. And whenever they are watered, they manifest up at the level of the mind consciousness. So Tai is drawing the diagram again with the circle. And the upper level is the mind consciousness, the lower level is the store consciousness. And all the seeds are down here in the store consciousness. The seeds that cause suffering and the seeds that are positive and wholesome. So down here, if the seed of anger in you is too big, it, it's probably because you've allowed it to be watered too much in your daily life. We should not allow it to be watered. We shouldn't water the seed of anger. We need to protect ourselves. We need to protect our mind. When a child is watching television, the TV program is going to water various seeds in the child's mind. It may be watering violence, hatred, fear. That's not good for that child. And the same is true for us as adults. We should not allow the painful seeds, the seeds of suffering to be watered. We have to protect ourselves. So every time a seed manifests up in the level of the mind consciousness, it sprouts up becomes a zone of energy, and we call it a mental formation. So the practitioner has to be present to be able to recognize what is happening in his or her mind. If anger comes up, she knows anger is there. And in this way, we are the master of ourselves, and we're never taken away, carried away by anger. The energy that recognizes the mental formation is called mindfulness. So that's the second energy manifesting in the mind consciousness. When the first energy manifests, we invite the second energy to come up and manifest so that it can recognize the first mental formation, the first energy that is manifesting. And that way, we are safe. This is the energy of the Buddha. Mindfulness, concentration, insight. These are the energies of the Buddha that are in us. We just need to know how to take advantage of the presence of the Buddha in us, how to benefit. So when anger comes up, we want to right away invite the energy of mindfulness to be there to take care of that suffering energy of anger. So the ninth exercise is to recognize all, each mental formation that's coming up, whether it's positive or negative. The tenth exercise 
is to beautify the landscape of the mind, to gladden the mind, to energize the mind. So the, the mind consciousness is like a kind of living room, and the store consciousness is kind of like the basement where you put everything you don't like. It's the cellar. We want our living area to be pleasant, so we want to invite the positive things to come up and manifest. We have all these different seeds in us. You have a seed of joy, a seed of happiness. You have a seed of mindfulness. You have a seed of understanding. All of those seeds can be invited to manifest in the mind consciousness. So the tenth exercise is to beautify, to make the landscape of our mind more beautiful, more pleasant. We want to make our living area inside beautiful inside us and also for the ones we love. So we need to know how to invite those good seeds to manifest in the level of the mind consciousness. When you come to a retreat such as this one, you have a lot more opportunity because everything you see, everything you hear is designed to water those good seeds and help them to manifest, and that produces happiness. So we need to know how to do that for ourselves and for the one we love. We don't want to water the seeds of suffering. We need to know how to water the good seeds. That's the practice of happiness. You may talk about this practice with your partner. Darling, if you love me, please don't water the seeds of suffering in me the seed of jealousy, the seed of fear, the seed of anger. You know and I know that they're there in me, and any time they're watered, I suffer, and when I suffer, you can't be happy either. So please help. Please refrain from watering the seeds of suffering in me. We need to sign a kind of a pact, a peace and happiness treaty with our partner, with our loved ones. We want to sign a contract, an accord for peace and happiness with our partner. Darling, you know that I have seeds of suffering in me, and whenever they are watered, I suffer. Whenever you water those seeds in me, I suffer, so if you really love me, please abstain 
from watering those seeds, and I make the same promise. Starting today, I will abstain from watering any painful seeds in you. I know that if I water the seed of anger in you, you will suffer, and I won't be happy either. Because in a relationship like this, happiness and suffering are no longer individual matters. If you suffer, I suffer. If I suffer, you suffer. And if I'm happy, you're happy. So we need to sign this kind of peace treaty. I make the vow not to water those seeds of suffering in myself. and not to water those seeds in you. And I would like you to make the same promise. You will not water the negative seeds in yourself or in me. So are we, are we in agreement? That's the first part of the Peace Treaty of Plum Village. The second part... You see, you know that I have good seeds in me, and you also have good seeds. So starting from today, we will do our best to recognize the good seeds in ourselves and each other, and to practice watering them each day. Each time I water a positive seed in myself, it comes up and manifests right away in my mind and produces happiness right away. The seed of mindfulness, the seed of understanding, the seed of love, the seed of joy, we can water those seeds and they come up right away. I do that for me and I also do it for you, my dear. And please, you do the same. Each day, let us try to recognize the good seeds in ourselves, to water them, and to recognize the good seeds in the other person, to also water them. And that will create a lot of happiness for us. It's not difficult. It's very doable. Right now, today, even with our telephone, we can practice the selective watering of the seeds in our mind. We don't want to water the seeds of suffering. We only want to water the seeds of happiness. So this is the object of the tenth exercise of mindful breathing, breathing in full awareness. Watering the good seeds. Each time a 
a seed of suffering is watered, it manifests. And as practitioners, we need to do something as soon as possible. We don't want to give that seed time to grow bigger and dominate. We don't want to be caught in that negative energy. We want to do something. And that something is to look for a way to invite that seed of suffering that has become a zone of energy in the mind consciousness to, to go back down into the form of the seed in in the store consciousness, quietly sleeping. There are things we can do. First of all, we invite the seed of mindfulness to come up and manifest as soon as possible, to be able to recognize and to embrace that painful zone of energy, that painful feeling. And we want to create that habit of recognizing the painful feeling. That's the seventh exercise. This energy of mindfulness will recognize the painful feeling and will embrace it just like a mom taking her baby into her arms and cradling it. The energy of mindfulness will penetrate into the energy of the anger or the fear and a little transformation begins to take place right away. After having spent some minutes in that bath of mindfulness, the anger or the despair will slowly come back down to its place as a seed sleeping in the store consciousness. So mindfulness is a kind of bath, the bath of mindfulness. And every affliction such as anger or despair needs to have a bath of mindfulness to allow it to go back down to its place as a seed in the store consciousness. So recognizing the painful feeling, embracing the painful feeling, it decreases, it starts to soften, and eventually it goes back down. We shouldn't just leave it up in this in the mind consciousness to grow bigger and stronger and also strengthen the seed down below at the same time. That's the practice. The second method is to invite another seed of a wholesome nature to manifest. So for example, you have the seed of anger but you also have the seed of understanding. The Buddha nature is in you. You have the energy of compassion. 
So when we play music, if you don't like the music that's playing, why do you just let it go on and on and on? You can take it off and change the CD. You have CDs or your iPod, just change the music. So anger is up, it's making you suffer. Why should you just let that go on and on? Invite the energy of compassion, of love, to come up and change. Change the, the music. You have good things in you. You should take advantage of them. Make use of them. We need good music. And we can do this very quickly, and it's pretty easy. When your partner is caught in anger or despair, you need to help him or her to change that CD. <coughs> because in him, and him or her, there are also good things. There's joy, happiness, compassion. We need to know how to water those seeds so that they can manifest and take over the space. Happiness is an art. We can do it right now today. When a good seed is manifesting, this is the third practice. It makes the landscape of our mind beautiful and pleasant. So the practitioner knows what to do to maintain, to keep that positive energy in the mind for as long as possible. If something good is manifesting up in the mind, we want to do what we can to keep it, to have it continue to manifest as long as possible. Joy, love, happiness, we want them to stay. And this is something we can do. If your partner has a joy, we can also help that joy to continue manifesting in him or her. So these are very concrete practices recommended by the Buddha. This is the practice of right diligence. These are the four practices of right diligence. It has four aspects. So the first one was not to water the seeds of suffering. Secondly, if a seed of suffering is already manifesting, we want to help it to go back down. Don't encourage it to stay, but encourage it to go back down. So these practices of right diligence are very concrete. We need to 
understand the practice of right diligence in terms of watering. We don't want the seed of suffering to manifest, so we refrain from watering that seed in ourselves and in the other person. That's the first one. Secondly, whenever a seed of suffering is manifesting, we do whatever we can to help it to go back down to its original place as a seed. Helping to embrace it with a wholesome mental formation. The third practice of right diligence is inviting the wholesome seeds to manifest. And then the fourth is after they have manifested, we do what we can to keep them alive as long as possible up in our mind. That is what the Buddha recommended about diligence in our practice, effort. That's the art of happiness. of the path recommended by the Buddha, the Noble Eightfold Path recommended by the Buddha. The first element of the Eightfold Path is right view. Right view is the insight, the correct insight into reality the reality of ourself and the reality of the world. And this insight may be called the insight of interbeing. Right view as the insight of interbeing. And this insight can be acquired through meditation, not necessarily by studying. Let us look at this piece of paper. It has the front and the back side. It has a left and a right. The left, can it exist by itself? No, it only can exist at the same time with the right. So the left and the right go together. They cannot be by themselves alone. They 
only can interbe with each other. And the same is true with the above and the below. If the above is there, there has to be a below at the same time. We cannot remove the below to keep the above. It's impossible. And the same is true with suffering and happiness, the mud and the lotus flowers, good and bad, being and non-being. This flower, when you look deeply into it, you can see the non-flower elements. You you see only non-flower elements. For example, the sun. Without the sun, nothing can grow. So when we look at this uh, sunflower, we see the sun. If we take the sun out, that flower no longer exists. So the sun is a non-flower element which is indispensable to the manifestation of this flower that we're enjoying now. When we look deeply, we can also see a cloud. The cloud is floating there in the flower because we know very well that the cloud is an essential non-flower element essential for the existence of the flower because if there's no cloud, there's no rain, nothing can grow. So we see also the minerals, the earth, the rain, everything. The whole cosmos is there in the flower. So we can conclude that the flower is made of only, solely non-flower elements. A flower cannot be by itself. Nothing can be by itself. The flower has to interbe with the whole cosmos. The flower has to interbe with the sun. It has to interbe with the cloud, with the earth, with everything. So, to be by oneself is impossible. So when I say I am, I am, it's a bit far from the reality. It's closer if I say I inter-am. That's better. We inter-are. That's closer to the reality because Nothing can be by itself. Everything has to interbe with everything else. That is the deepest teaching of Buddhism, the interconnection, the interpenetration of all things. We cannot say to our friend, please come and take the backside of this sheet of paper and take it to Bordeaux and ask our other friend to take the front side and take it to Toulouse. It's not possible. Just like the left and the right, they inter-are. The left 
is not exactly the enemy of the right. Monsieur Le Pen. He is not exactly the enemy of President Hollande. Le Pen is a right-wing leader, a political leader in France. So the left should not wish for the right to disappear because then the left will disappear at the same time. And the same is true with good and bad, happiness, suffering, above, below, being and non-being. We need the practice to be able to look deeply and one day you will have this insight that we call right view. And when you have right view, there is no more discrimination. No more discrimination between this and that, left and right, me and you, good and bad. This energy that liberates us is called right view. Right view is the fruit of the practice. The we also practice right mindfulness and right concentration. These are the seventh and eighth elements of the Eightfold Path. Mindfulness is an energy that carries within it right concentration. When mindfulness and concentration are powerful, vigorous enough, we will be able to make a breakthrough into reality and obtain right view. This is the heart of Buddhist practice. To practice Buddhist meditation is to generate the energy of mindfulness and concentration and right view. And these three insights of mindfulness, concentration, and insight have the power to liberate ourselves and the world. And with right view, this insight, we can practice right thinking, the second element. Right thinking is thinking that is free of any discrimination. Right thinking contains a lot of understanding and compassion because there's no more discrimination. There is no more division between the one who loves and the one who is loved. There's no more distinction made between the one who prays and the one who is prayed to. There's no more division between human and God or the Buddha and living beings. We inter are. The creator is the created, the creature. We cannot remove the creator from the creature. These two realities inter are. (coughs) 
pray, you want to establish a relationship. The right relationship can only be created with right view. God and Buddha are not realities outside of us. We know that the seed of mindfulness, the seed of concentration, the seed of insight, these seeds are in you, and it is the Buddha's energy in you. You should not go looking outside of yourself for the Buddha, nor for God. The Holy Spirit, what is it? The energy of God. For me, the Holy Spirit can heal, can nourish, can transform. The Holy Spirit is equivalent to the mindfulness, concentration, and insight. If you are inhabited by these energies, you are inhabited by God, by the Buddha. You don't need to go looking for Buddha or God outside of you. They are always there inside. You can touch the presence of the Buddha of God in you at any moment. So this right view will be able to help you to generate, to produce right thinking. Right thinking is thinking characterized by non-discrimination. What is right view? Hey, there's a way it, it was explained. One day a monk came and addressed the Buddha. The monk's name is Kachayana. He said, Dear teacher, you have spoken a number of times about right view. What is right view? Exactly. And that day, the Buddha gave a definition of right view as, as like this. Right view is the understanding, the view that is free of the views of being and non-being. Yesterday in the session of questions and answers, a child asked me this question, why does the world exist? I said, are you sure the world exists? Why? If something exists, why shouldn't it just continue to exist and why should it become something that doesn't exist tomorrow or the next day. This is like a question about life, about existence, and about death. So that day the Buddha defined insight, right view, as the, the view that transcends the opposites, the pair of opposites called being and non-being. There are theologians who have defined God as the ground of being, such as Paul Tillich. I want to ask him, if God is the ground of being, then who's going to be the ground of non-being? 
So we cannot describe God in terms of being and non-being. God is the absolute, the ultimate, that cannot be described in terms of being and non-being. So right view is the view, the insight that transcends all the notions, notions of being, non-being, birth, and death. When we look at a cloud, when we meditate on a cloud, we will be able to touch the no-birth, no-death nature of the cloud. And this is something doable. Can a cloud die? No. Because in our head, dying means from someone, we become no one. From something, we become nothing. This doesn't happen with a cloud. A cloud can never become nothing. In our head, to die means to pass from being to not being. We are something and then suddenly we are no longer. We are someone and then suddenly we're no one. There's nobody there. That's the definition of death. But when we look deeply into the truth, into the reality, we see that nothing can really be described that way. A cloud may become rain or snow or hail, but a cloud can never become nothing. A cloud never dies. You cannot kill a cloud. Scientists have also seen this. The French scientist Lavoisier said, nothing is lost. Nothing is created, nothing is lost. Nothing is born, nothing dies. This is very very close to the, the heart of perfect understanding that we chanted this morning. There's no birth, there's no death. The first law of thermodynamics says the same thing. Matter is energy. You cannot create matter, and you cannot destroy matter. You can transform matter. You can transform matter into energy, or energy into matter, but you cannot create or transform matter or energy. So scientists and meditation practitioners are in agreement on this point. The nature of all things is no birth, no death. The cloud that you see in the sky, it didn't come from nothing. In its previous life, it was water in the ocean, steam, vapor, the sun's energy, the heat. The cloud did not come from nothingness, from non-being. 
that is false. It is not a birth. It is a transformation. It's a continuation, a different manifestation. So a birth is really just a continuation, a new manifestation. Nothing is created. Nothing is lost. It is impossible to be born or to die, to pass from non-being into being and back to non-being. We always continue. So to produce a thought, that's continuation. If that thought that has just been produced is full of despair, full of violence, hatred, that will destroy your, our body, our mind, and it will destroy the world. That is not right thinking. Right thinking is thinking that is characterized by right view, free from notions like being and non-being, birth and death. That is the fruit of profound meditation. With right view, we would be able to produce right thinking, thoughts that carry understanding and compassion. If you have just produced right thinking full of understanding and compassion, it will heal your body and mind and it will help to heal the world. So a practitioner should be able to produce these kinds of thoughts throughout the day. Looking into suffering, understanding suffering, you can generate compassion and understanding. This right thinking will heal you, transform you, and heal and transform the world. And that's your continuation. With right view, you can practice right speech, the third element. This speech is also characterized by non-discrimination, by understanding and compassion. What you say can heal the other person and can heal you at the same time. You have the time to sit down. There's a person who may have made you suffer. If you look and you can see the suffering in him or her, that person who made you suffer, that understanding of suffering will provide you with the understanding. Oh, that poor person, he's suffering. She's suffering. He doesn't know how to handle his suffering. You have compassion for him or her. And then you can write that person a letter 
And during the writing, you are practicing right speech. Maybe you need half an hour to write this letter. That's a half hour of healing and transformation because you are practicing loving speech, right speech. And this is what This is the subject of the fourth of the five mindfulness trainings. Write speech to help the others to suffer less and to transform. This is something very doable. We can talk to the other person. We can water the seeds of understanding and compassion in him or her. We can give that person confidence and joy in living through right speech. You have joy, you have compassion in you, and you are in a position to do this. That's the practice. With right speech, we will be able to restore communication with the other person. And we have already offered many retreats of mindfulness all over the world. Usually this kind of retreat goes for five or six days or a week. Around the fifth day, we can already begin to practice using right speech, loving speech to restore communication. Because during the first four days or five days of the retreat, we've been watering the good seeds in ourselves. And that's why on the fifth day we can already look with compassion. We can speak with compassion and we will be able to open the door of that person's heart. That person may be there on the retreat or at home. Now, as the compassion and understanding have started to grow in me, I'm in a position that I can practice right speech to restore the communication. I may say something like this, my dear, I know you have suffered a lot these last few years. We can say this to our son, our daughter, our partner, our mom or our dad. Dad, I know you've suffered a lot in your life. Darling, I know you've, you've had a hard time these last few years. I I wasn't able to help you. I reacted in a way that made the situation worse. I'm so sorry. It was never my intention to make you suffer. 
it was because I didn't understand your suffering, I didn't see it clearly. I didn't understand. That's why I reacted the way I did. I'm so sorry. It was not my intention to make you suffer. And I need your help. I need you to tell me what's in your heart, your suffering, your difficulties. Because if I can understand that suffering, those difficulties, then I won't keep repeating. The mistake, I won't keep reacting the way I have done in the past, but I need you to help me. I need you to help me to understand. If you don't help me, who's going to be able to? So this is loving speech. And if you have understanding and compassion in you, it's easy to say this. On the fifth day of the retreat, we can do it. If the other person is on the retreat, that makes it very easy because that person has also been exposed to the good watering this week. But if the other person isn't in the retreat, you are authorized to use your cell phone. Restore communication and reconciling. This is possible with five days of practice. We can do it. The miracle of reconciliation occurs in our retreats all the time between father and son, mother and daughter, partner with partner, This is the practice of the fourth mindfulness training. Deep listening, compassionate listening, and loving speech. With this practice, we will be able to restore communication and reconcile with the other person. Many pairs have done this through our retreats. You know, here in Plum Village, we have invited friends from the Middle East, Palestinians and Israelis, who came in a group In the beginning, it was very difficult. One group couldn't look at the other because in each group, there was a lot of suffering, a lot of fear. A lot of suspicion, mistrust, and anger. 
practice, calming the emotions and the feelings, they could begin to practice loving speech and looking deeply. When one group was speaking, the other just listened, and we, we were there to support them. Hundreds of people were there supporting these friends. The person speaking has the right to say everything in their heart, but is to try to say it with loving speech. We can say everything, but we need to use the kind of language that helps the other person to understand. That's the loving speech. So we don't accuse and judge and blame. We speak the truth of our suffering. And on the other side, we just listen. We practice compassionate listening. Because if we know how to listen in this way, we will be able to help the other person to suffer less. Deep, compassionate listening. In life, if there is someone who can listen to you like that, you're very fortunate. Deep listening. Compassionate listening. So while someone is expressing himself or herself, we sit there, body and mind together, and we listen with compassion. One hour of this kind of listening is very healing. You're playing the role of the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, compassionate listening, and one hour of listening like that will help the other person to suffer less. The other person may be our partner, your son, your father, your spouse. That person has suffered a lot. And you're there for him, you're there for her. My dear, I know you have suffered a lot. I need to know about your suffering. Please help me. And you are there to listen. As a practitioner, we should know how to protect ourselves while we listen. Because what the other person says could water the seed of anger in us. And if anger manifests, then we are no longer able to listen with serenity. So we need to protect ourselves with the energy of compassion. This is something doable. Before we listen, we say to ourselves, this listening is going to be the help the other person suffer less. The sole aim of what I'm doing is to help the other person to empty out his heart and to suffer less. That's why even if she says things that are not true, even if there's bitterness, 
and judgment. I will continue listening because I know if I interrupt, if I try to correct the other person, I will turn this into a, ses a session of debate and it's ruined. So I will just keep my compassion alive so I can listen in a way that helps the other person to suffer less, even if he says things that are not correct. Later on, some days later, I can supply information that may help the other person to correct wrong perceptions, but not now. This is just for listening with compassion. And you keep that mindfulness of compassion alive and it protects you. And what the other person says can no longer water the seed of anger, of irritation in you, because you are protected by the energy of compassion, mindfulness of compassion. You remember one thing. When I listen, I am listening with one aim only, to give that person a chance to suffer less. If you remember that throughout that half hour of listening or that hour, you are protected by your compassion. And what the other person says cannot touch, cannot water the seeds of suffering in you. The practitioner needs to listen in this way. One hour can be enough to reestablish communication and to arrive at a reconciliation. We shouldn't just let the problem go on year after year. We can do something to transform the situation with the practice of loving speech. And right view will also enable us to practice right action. That's the fourth element of the Eightfold Path. This, is, this means bodily action. With your body, your physical body, you can do things to protect, to save, rescue, to help. Because right action is motivated by understanding the suffering and the intention to help people suffer less. So every day the practitioner generates right thinking, right speech, and right action to heal herself, transform herself, and help the other person to transform and heal himself. Nothing is ever lost. So 
When you produce a thought, it continues on indefinitely. If a cloud can never die, the same is true of your thoughts. These are three aspects, thinking, speech, and bodily action, three aspects of the practice. You are your thoughts, you are your words, and you are your actions. Thought, speech, and action generated by you are your continuation. When this body disintegrates, you continue on, even if no one can see this cloud in the sky, that cloud continues in the form of rain, a stream, and so on. There is no death, there is only continuation, and we can always ensure a good continuation for ourselves through right speech, right thought, and right action. Jean-Paul Sartre said something very close to this. He said, the human is the sum of their actions. The human is not just, is not the, this body, it's their action. A person is their action. This is karma. Karma means action. So there's three forms of action. Thinking, speech, and bodily acts. These are your continuation, your karma. We've already spoken today of six elements of the Eightfold Path, the first four and the last two. So the fifth one, after the right action, is right livelihood. That's the fifth element. Our profession, our career, what you do to earn your living, right livelihood. We don't want to harm life of humans or other species, the planet. And the last one, the sixth element, is right diligence. And the seventh was mindfulness, and the eighth was, con was concentration. So that's the selective watering that we spoke about, right diligence. We should not water the seeds of suffering. We want to water the wholesome seeds in our daily life. So this is the noble eightfold path recommended by the Buddha. The path that leads to the cessation of suffering. The cessation of pain. The path that leads to happiness, and the path is happiness itself. Because when you practice right thinking, happiness is right there already. 
healing, transformation, and joy are there as you are practicing. When you practice right speech, there is joy, there is healing immediately in the doing. So there is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way. Let us, when we take the path of the five mindfulness trainings, we begin to walk that, that path. The five mindfulness trainings are very concrete expression of the Noble Eightfold Path proposed by the Buddha. We can practice as a community. We need the collective energy of the Sangha to help us keep our practice going. We need to recite the five trainings at least once a month. Every two weeks is better. We need to organize Dharma sharing about the application of these trainings in daily life situations to deepen our understanding of these mindfulness trainings. And with the practice, our view becomes more and more the right view. And if we have that, then our thinking, our speech, and our bodily acts will be will bring even more happiness right away. It's time. Time for a walking meditation. Please remain after Ty goes out of the hall to hear a few announcements. <laughs>